said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. And Hannah and Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin. Joseph's brother and his brother, uh, Joseph's brother, and with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others whom came at famine in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him, their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers. But they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, my, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes to you. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother. While you remain confined, <clears throat> that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress in his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he remembered to them, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from uh, them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain. 
and replace every man's money in his sack and give them provisions for their journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack, he dipped his donkey for her and at the lodging place. He saw in uh, that sack the money. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. We said to him, We are honest men, we have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take rain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My sons shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you make, you would bring down my grey hairs with sorrow to Sean. Father, help us in these moments, we ask, as we look briefly at the journey together. Lord, teach us by your spirit. May we see again this week you above all of the land. May we desire your love and your grace in our lives as we read this narrative about Joseph. So still our heart in these moments, help us to be active as we read it and study it together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Apart from Benjamin, the brothers of Joseph, the, the others were frankly miserable and wretched. We know that, don't we? Two uh, sons, uh, sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, were guilty of premeditated mass slaughter. Number one son, Reuben, has committed incest with his father's concubine in an attempt to secure ascendancy. All ten brothers had taken Joseph, stripped him, nearly killed him, and threw him into a pit. Number four son, which was Judah, then impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And uh, we then see a picture of the first four of the sons, and all, really, of these ten sons uh, as wretched men. And so these promise bearers, which is a striking uh, description of these men, which is what they are, these promise bearers, those who would inherit the blessing of Abraham, were, to say the least, less than promising. <coughs> these promise bearers are less than promising. The brothers 
After all they've done, they needed to confront it with their guilt. They needed to confront it with their guilt. They needed awakening of their conscience. They needed to mourn. They needed to repent. They needed grace. See, these men were to be the future of Israel. But its future rested upon such changes. And as we saw last Sunday, the famine was not simply localized to Egypt. And it was widespread. It says that the world was in famine. And in verse 40, in chapter 41 and in verse 57, we see that. And it says here, even in verse 1 of 43, now the famine was severe in the land. The famine was severe in the land. We have then, once again, been reminded here, as we have been many times, that this famine was severe. Severe in Egypt, severe in Canaan, severe in Palestine and beyond. And so everyone came to Egypt. Well, because of Joseph's brilliance, the whole world came to him. And it was because of his brilliance. You know, Egypt had enough to save the world, if you want to put it that way. It had enough grain to save the world. The famine, as I've already said, had reached the far points of the inhabited world. But with an apparent sense of urgency, Jacob looks at his sons for help in getting the grain. You see, in verses 1, or the second half of verse 1, and through verse 2, we see that. It says, And when they had eaten the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us little food. Buy us little food. I don't know what the sons are doing at this moment in the story. I don't know. But it's the middle of the famine. Word has reached them that there is grain in Egypt, but yet the brothers seem to be disinterested, indecisive, or maybe just plain lazy. And so Jacob spurs them on to action. And it's as if Jacob sort of pulls his ten sons together and says, Come on, boys! Let's get to it, get with it, let's get down to Egypt, let's make that return back there, and let's go, let's get on our way. And so they all went, except Benjamin. Why? Verse 4. If you will send our brothers with us, we will go down and buy food. And then it says this, but I will not send him. We will not go down. For this man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. I'm sure Jacob was convinced by what happened to Joseph, but yet there is evidently a certainty about the uncertainty of what will happen to Benjamin if he goes down to Egypt. Maybe this was because Jacob knew full well of the nature of his sons and their capabilities. He knew their character. He knew what they had done in the past. And I'm convinced at this moment these 12 men standing there 
the ten brothers felt their consciences being pricked because Joseph, because Jacob did not want to send his youngest son with the other brothers. And so the other brothers saw in Jacob something of what they had done to Joseph in the past. And so I want to break up these uh, following verses really under two headings. The first one is this, that there is a kindling guilt. A kindling guilt. In verses 6 through 25, there is a kindling guilt. It was inevitable that the brothers' memories were brought back on the thoughts of what they had done to their brother. There's no way that these ten guys could have lived their life without thinking back to what they had done to their brother. Although they weren't necessarily guilty or felt guilt in their lives. And so for <coughs> all of us, we can relate. There are significant moments etched in our minds and in our lives. You know, they, they are moments which are etched because they had such significance. They had an impact on our life at that moment. And therefore, our mind goes back to that point. And there is emotion with that. And for the brothers, <clears throat> 13 years have passed. 13 years have passed. Not without a thought of Joseph, I'm sure. But I'm also sure that those 13 years have passed without much or any guilt for what had happened to him. However, they never approach Egypt, Egypt thinking they're going to see him. <coughs> now they know he's gone to Egypt, but they would never think that they would see him. You know, if he was alive, he would be it an obscure slave somewhere in somebody's household. Well, that's only if he was alive. But God. God would have it that the brothers would meet Joseph face to face. Yet unaware of who he was, Remember, Joseph was now fully Egyptianized. He was fully Egyptianized. Beardless, dressed in fine linen, decked out in gold, wearing the colours of the Nile. And he spoke the Egyptian language. Fluently. Of course he did. And therefore, they approached Joseph and they did what every foreigner did in verse 6. Read it. In verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land. Oh, sorry, I think I'm in the wrong, in the wrong chapter. Now Joseph was the governor of the land. He was the one who sold to all the doors of the land. And Joseph uh, brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. This was how everybody approached the leaders of Egypt. They came and they bowed themselves down. And so Joseph obviously recognized his brothers. Bearded Jewish men, ten of them, all of one family, uh, all brothers, older, yes, and grayer, yes, probably, but still undeniably recognizable. So did Joseph freeze? Did he grasp and, and grasp what was going on? Did he, did he compose himself? What did he do in those moments when he saw his brothers who had sent him there? When they were bowing down in front of him? Well, he was utterly composed 
picture the scene. Joseph poised, standing over ten men who were once looking over him in fear. There's so much irony in this narrative for really those of you who do our study on the irony of uh, Genesis uh, 37 through 50. Joseph at this moment had the advantage over his brothers. They didn't know it was him, he knew it was them. And he knew them with frighteningly amazing intimacy. <coughs> and now he had enough power to determine whether they live or they die. But above all, Joseph needed to know what their hearts were. Were they still the deceitful brothers that they always were once? How he knew them back 13 years before. Had they changed? Were they heartless? Were they as heartless as they were 13 years ago? Would they sacrifice another to save their own skin? And so Joseph begins his interrogation in verse 7. He begins his interrogation. We won't have time to read verse 7 to 11, but this is where it happens. In the middle of the interrogation, Joseph remembered yet again his two dreams of them bowing down to him. And I'm sure there was a certain satisfaction in Joseph. I'm sure it was humble satisfaction, but I'm sure there was satisfaction as he watched them back. But there was also a realization that the dreams hadn't yet been fulfilled. <laughs> These 13-year-old dreams, or more now, were not necessarily fulfilled. You see, his teenage dream included not 10, but 11 brothers. Plus, who? His father and his mother. There was more to come. This wasn't the end of God's working out of his dream. And so he gave charges of espionage or spying in a political sense. He said, you are spies, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. That means the weak points in Egypt's defenses. They counted uh, with terror, filled honesty, but Joseph pushed harder on. He said, no, it is the nakedness of the land you have come to see. To which they responded in verse 13, they said this, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest brother is this day with our father, and one is no more. Immediately after Joseph puts uh, the brothers to the test, he says this, verse 15. You shall be tested. <coughs> By the light of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while he remains confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else that by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spoken. Notice that the affliction of which Joseph is about to bestow on his brothers sits in parallel to the affliction which they bore on him. Can you see it? They oppressed him. Now Joseph oppresses them. They accused him of spying. Now he accuses them. They have thrown him into the pit. Now he throws them into the prison, or as we read in the previous chapters, the pit. 
And most strikingly is this, Joseph asked them to bring forth their younger brother, the favourite of their father, who now occupies the place which he used to occupy in his father's heart. And as we would say in Northern Ireland, Joseph was no dozer. He was clever. He was cunning in how he was playing with the minds and the hearts of his brothers. But we must notice two important things about Joseph's discourse here. The first thing is this, that Joseph mentions Ha Elohim, which is a reference to God in verse 18. In verse 18 he says, I fear God. The ten brothers have yet to mention God, but the Egyptian does. This was probably the last thing they needed to be mentioned. I'm sure in their trembling, in those moments, as life is so uncertain for them, and after all they have done, for Yahweh to be introduced into their circumstances, the last thing they need right now. Joseph, secondly, decided one brother would stay rather than the ten, that nine would go home to Benjamin. Now, this has a twofold outcome. Yes, they would be able to carry the grain back and therefore sustain Joseph's entire Canaanite family. So we see the love that Joseph has for them. But it is also suggestive of Joseph's original <coughs> See, after all, they have been given a free pass out of prison. They have been given the grain that they so need to survive. But here's the test. Will they leave the brother behind as they did over a decade ago? It's pretty good, isn't it? You see why Joseph reverses the, the reason for putting them in prison. He put them in there, and then he takes them out and leaves one behind. And I think at this moment, he's just trying to see the heart of his brothers. And look at the fruit which was born out of Joseph's strategy in verses 21 and 22, as we keep pushing forward here this morning. <coughs> then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. One comment is of this. Their confession was tinged with retrospective tenderness. <coughs> Joseph, whom they had scorned as the dreamer in verse 37 and 19, in chapter 37 and 19, was now referred as our brother. The dreamer has become the brother, of which he never was. And Reuben now talks about the boy. It wasn't until now that Joseph knew that Reuben had, had not consented to his sale. You see, he didn't hear what Joseph, uh, Reuben said way back. But now he realizes that Reuben was on his side. Joseph also knew now that 
His brothers were maybe not as hardened in heart as he always thought they were. Or maybe they have softened over the last 10 years or so. Or maybe at least his interrogation and three days in prison had given him time for the guilt to kindle within him. You see, true grace is found in guilt. And we could put it the other way. True guilt is a grace. That's a really unusual phrase when we look at that this morning. You see, if we don't feel guilt, then we are never led to seek forgiveness and repent. You see, we have to embrace this kind of guilt because it drives us to God. It's what we do in our lives, those of us who believe and trust in God as our own. We were guilty of our sin against the Holy God. And that is what drove us to God. And so we must see guilt as a grace. And in this moment, with the brothers, they were full of guilt. They talk here of Joseph and their actions as if they did these things just moments before. They come with such clarity and such uh, sort of immediacy that they just almost happened. But look at the incredible and beautiful moving response of Joseph in verse 24. And this is so stunning. He said, Then he turned away from them and wept. <coughs> after a moment of composition, after he's weeping here, further testing begins. In verses 24, the second, verse, the second half of verse 24 and 25. He says, And he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes, and Joseph gave orders to fill the bags with grain and replace every man's money in a sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. The question I have is this, why did Joseph bound Simeon in front of him? Do you ever thought about that? Why did Joseph bind Simeon in front of the other brothers. Well, as we have already alluded to, everything Joseph does to and in front of his brothers seems to be showing and digging to see if they have affection for one another. Do the brothers love one another? And so this is a test. The same goes for Joseph in the next move that he makes in verse 25 as he puts the money bags in their sacks. When the brothers find those money bags, will they abandon Simeon? Will they leave him there in prison? Well, we'll soon see the answers. See, I want to show you this under the last heading this morning. A godly fear is introduced. A godly fear. Verses 26 to 28. For the first time ever in the narrative, the brothers mention the Lord. For the first time. Why is this? Well, we could assume that their raging guilt led them to him. That they were fearful of the divine in a way that 
we have never seen before, even with their horrific actions, even after all they have done in previous years and their wickedness, there is a great sense of trembling in an awesome awareness of the Lord. See, earlier we thought about guilt being grace in a sense that it drives us to the Lord for forgiveness. Well, I think the same for fear. Fear is a grace. The person who fears God is one who comes to God to have their fears relieved. And therefore, godly fear acts in the same way as guilt. It steers us in the direction of the Lord, and therefore, we all need a godly fear today. These brothers were miraculously being changed by their guilt and by their fear. <coughs> And all of this by God's grace. John Newton in 1779, I don't think any of you were around in 1779. But he wrote these words, you'll know them. Twas grace that taught my heart to be free. Twas grace that taught my heart the long journey to Canaan was complete. The brothers then told Jacob all that had happened. Well, nearly all that happened. Again, this is some selective editing on behalf of the brothers. In an effort to persuade the father to send Benjamin, they didn't tell their father that they were in prison for three days. The threat was upon their life. And thirdly, the discovery of the money in the sack. All edited out for the father. But Jacob remained unmoved and silent. But not for long, in verse 35 to 38, we see Jacob. We see his reaction. And it must be noted that Jacob's grave hair, as he talks about here, indicates the toll that grief and sorrow had taken upon him in losing his son Joseph. And to lose Benjamin would simply take him to show to cause him to die. So he calls Benjamin the only one left. Did you notice it when we read it? Couldn't help when I was reading it to notice it. And I asked ask the question, what is this referencing? And I believe it's a reference back to week one where we saw that Jacob's favoritism of the sons which were born to the wife in which he loved. There were only two sons, remember? But Reuben makes an absurd promise here in verse 37 on the life of his two sons. This will make you shudder a little bit. He promises to take and bring back Jacob's now favorite son, Benjamin. And it is clear, therefore, from Reuben's promise that sons, uh, the sons of Jacob saw Jacob's sorrow. There was no other way they, they could have perceived it, but they saw the sorrow of their father. They saw the sorrow that came from losing his son, Joseph, 
for a Syrian who is now bound and imprisoned in Egypt and the potential of Benjamin leaving. <coughs> and in turn felt that sorrow for their own. As they looked on him, the father in whom they really probably did love, as they saw his sorrow, the sorrow was their own then. And we could say then that godly fear of Joseph's brother was now matched by their godly sorrow. And therefore we could say, if we wanted to, is this, that sorrow is a grace. We see sorrow as a grace. But in turn here, I want to read 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. It says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. You see what godly sorrow does? You see where it leads us and where it brings us? This is the effect of godly sorrow. And this is the effect that it would have on the brothers. Godly sorrow would lead them to repentance. They will never be great men of God as desired of them. They were always imperfect. Their past sins would haunt them going forward and cause trouble as we will see as we push on through the chapters in a few weeks and months ahead. But we need to realize this today, and this is important. The moment when the bowed before, when they bowed before their unrecognizable brother, was the moment of redemptive grace for their souls. Godly guilt, godly fear, and godly sorrow by grace were going to affect these men in a possible way. You see, it's the grace of God. The God who reigned now over the godless Egypt. And really the godless brothers, which was changing these men like they had never experienced before. And so, friends, do you desire God's grace for yourself? As you see it working in these men that we see are so bad, almost so messed up in their life and what they've done in the past, but yet being transformed by, by man, yes, but through man they've been transformed by God's grace and by their circumstances, and by God's grace they are being turned into and shaped into men that God will use. Do you desire that grace for yourself? And if so, we need to accept the guilt of our sin. Not blaming anybody else for it. And such guilt is good that leads to God. It invites God's grace. And along with this, let's cultivate a godly fear that leads to a reverence of Him. And to us standing in awe of Him and who He is. And finally, our sorrow. Maybe the sorrow of our personal state right now. Maybe that will lead you to repentance. 
knowing that you continue down the roads you're on, but that will lead to a God-blessed eternity. May what we know of as guilt in our lives be good, may we grasp that. May we cultivate godly fear in our lives, and may sorrow in our life, if that is coming, may that drive us to repentance. From God, by God, and through God. So may God bless us with guilt. May He bless us with fear. And may He bless us with sorrow. For His glory. Let's sing together then as we finish. Let me just sing first and last, if possible. And then we'll. Let me just first and chorus. And then we'll join on the table for a brief moment. For all those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, please stay and take. If you need to leave during the heavenly things we have, we do welcome you to stay. Let's stand and say, The Lord is my salvation. Just us.